Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So if you're looking for Micah, it's 594. I don't know, is that chapter 7, Jerry? Chapter 7. Takes you right to the place. My translation may be a little different than yours. But take a look at verse 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him. I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. But the day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. And that day people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance which lives by itself in a forest and fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Avram as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Mike, well, you know, it's like, and I heard this, I think Tim Keller had said these words and I resonate with them. You know, when you're a teacher of the word and you're always presenting different aspects of the Bible or different aspects of the scripture. It's like that verse is the most wonderful verse you ever read. You know, week to week, this is the most powerful passage I've ever read. And it's like each time we come to it, it's glorious, you know. 
And Micah the prophet is no exception. Just to give you some background on Micah, his ministry was experienced around 750 years before the time of Messiah. Same time as Isaiah. These two men were serving in the same capacity as prophets among Israel. Isaiah, however, had a more fortunate kind of ministry because he was a servant to the noblemen. He ministered to the kings of Judah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and others. Micah, on the other hand, was ministering to the common folks, you know. But Isaiah, he had the voice of the kings and the leaders of Israel. And Micah's book is very easy, really, to understand, although we read these verses, read them fairly quickly, and some of the things that we read, you might say, gee, what is he talking about? What is that about? It's really not all that difficult to ascertain. But the book can be divided into three parts. Let me just show you this. If you look at chapter 1, for example, beginning at verse 3, it begins with the word, hear. Hear. Shema. Listen up. Give ear to this. Verse 2, hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord, that's the theme of Micah, the sovereign Lord, the God who is in control of all things, may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Now, if you look at chapter 3, he says the same thing again. Hear, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil? And so the second part is found in chapter 3. And then if you take a look at chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. So these are the three sections of the book of Micah. They all begin with the same word. Hear, listen up. Here's another interesting thing about the book of Micah. Look how it opens. It opens on a word of judgment. The Lord is coming, verse 3, from his dwelling place. He comes down. He treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart. What is Jacob's transgression? What is Judah's high place? They're worshiping of false idols and God is going to come in judgment. But look how he ends. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? It's a word of judgment, but the final word is a word of grace and a word of mercy and a word of compassion. It's also interesting how often the book of Micah is made reference to in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant Scriptures. And so, for example, uh, we're told if you look at chapter, chapter 7, When Messiah, Yeshua, sent out his disciples in Matthew 10, he told them, do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Look at this. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. Yeshua quoted these passages when he sent his disciples out, telling them to be alert, be aware. There's going to be trial and tribulation as you proclaim the message of Messiah. Of course, Micah 5.2 is that wonderful passage when the Magi come from the east saying, where is he that's born king of the Jews? Bethlehem of Judah, Micah 5.2. And then there's another great passage. Look at Micah chapter 4. 
In the last days, he talks about the kingdom of Messiah, when he will establish his kingdom from the ends of the earth. He says the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Jerusalem is going to be changed topographically when Messiah returns, when he comes. And Mount Zion will be the tallest mountain in the world. That's what he says. He'll be chief among the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills. And all peoples of the world, nations, not just Israel, but the Gentile nations will stream into it. It's like a flowing river that's flowing upstream. It's kind of a weird thing. It's flowing up the mountain. The people are like that. They're flowing with such excitement and exuberance. We're going up to worship the king of Israel, and he's our king too. And as they go up to worship the king, Messiah, who is reigning, Micah sees them as like a river that's running, but it's running upstream, up to the mountain. The images are just beautiful. By the way, this is the same words of Isaiah chapter 4 or so. Well, these were two prophets. They were contemporaries. They probably read each other's manuscripts. They probably talked with each other. They probably discussed some things. And Micah may have said, you know, Isaiah, that is a pretty good thing. I'm going to take that, you know. After all, you know, the greatest form of flattery is theft. So he just... He just wrote it down, and, you know, but didn't give him credit, but it's exactly almost word to word. Or maybe it's the other way around. You know. But now look at chapter 7. <clears throat> and let's take a look at our passage. You know, this is one big grand poem. I know that men, we don't like poetry. But like 75% of the scripture is poetry. And Hebrew poetry is really kind of neat because it's not based on rhyme and meter. It's based on ideas and themes. And so they're referred to as Hebrew parallelism. And we can't get into all of that. But this is a poem. And so there's like three or four sections to this poem. Four hymns, four songs that Isaiah sings. I just want to show them to you. Look first of all at verses 8 through 10. It's a song uh, that, that he resounds of hope. Look what he says. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Now, of course, he's personifying Israel, personifying Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jewish people. We have fallen, indeed. We have been judged by God for our idolatry. We've been scattered to the four corners of the earth, as the prophets said we would experience. But look what the Israel says. Though I have fallen, I will rise. This is a section is a hymn, a song of hope. And what a personal hope that can be for all of us, because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all found ourselves in that place where we have said, I am not in a good place. I am really sad about what has transpired. I am really hurt given what has occurred. My body is killing me. I can barely get it up out of bed, can barely sit, can barely walk. I can't see like I used to be able to see, but one day I will rise. One day I will see as clearly as the dawn. One day I will mount up with wings like eagles, as Isaiah says. And so whatever limitations my body may be experiencing, whatever pains and sorrows I may be having, one day they will be a thing of the past. This is a song of hope. But this is not just a song of hope. This is a song of salvation. Look at verse 11. The day for building your walls will come. 
the day for extending your boundaries. This is a time of expansion. Salvation has come to Israel. And thus he sings about God's deliverance. And then take a look at verses 14 through 17. This is a song of restoration and vindication. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Look at verse 16. Vindication, nations will see and be ashamed of how they've acted toward God's people and toward the God of the universe. And then the last section is a song of assurance and confidence. Who is a God like you who pardons sin? He will cast all of our sin into the depths of the sea. A sense of confidence and a sense of assurance that our sin will be dealt with in such a way that it will be removed completely from me. So that's the movement of this section. Isn't that kind of neat? We could end there. We could say, wow, that, was, that alone was worth the price of coming. <laughs> you know, that alone was just wonderful. But let me just mention a few other things, okay? Look at verse 8 again. He's, Israel is talking to her enemies that have looked on Israel and looked on Israel's sufferings. And this, of course, is in the time of Micah, but we can look at it in our own day and age, scattered to the four corners of the, of the world. Throughout our history, it's been a history of endurance. Abba Iban, in his book, Civilization and the Jews, you know, his twofold theme of the history of Israel is their endurance and their contribution. They've endured great suffering. They've endured incredible anti-Semitic acts. And we continue to endure such things. All you need to do is read the New York Times. And I share with you on Wednesday evening what is going on in Europe. All we need to do is see what's going on in the Soviet Union and has been going on for a long time. All we need to do is to hear the voices, the murmurings, and the whispers of even our own neighbors in our own nation, in our own country, what is said about the Jews. And so our, our, our neighbors, they may gloat over us. Our enemies may gloat over us, but one day Israel will rise. And as the prophets say, will no longer be the tail of the nation, but will be the head. One day, ten men from every nation will grab the coat of him that is a Jew, Zechariah says, and say, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. And thus, we want to be on God's side, and that means being on the side of his people. This is not to exonerate the errors of our people. There are many. All you need to do is read the scripture, and you can see how often we have gone astray, how often we have gone after false gods, how often we have put aside the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and gone after the gods of power and influence, the gods that are inscribed on our diplomas that give us extra initials to our names. I've got some of those myself, so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I'm only saying that if our hope is on the things that hang on our walls, they can become idolatrous in our lives. Our 401ks, our money, our prestige, our employment can become gods in our lives. 
They can be the things that are preeminent in our lives. And certainly God provides for us that we can provide for our families, ourselves, and for others. But make no mistake about it, very often those things become counterfeit gods in our lives. And we have to be on guard. And our enemies gloat over us. Remember, we are God's people. And therefore, God holds us accountable for things he may not hold others accountable for in the same regard. Because we are privileged people to whom God has made himself known. But there is a day coming when all of that will be a thing of the past. A day is coming when we shall rise. And there is a time coming in our own lives where we can look back and say we have been risen. And yet there is so much more for us to rise up. None of us has arrived, but we're arriving. And at least we have been called out of the grave, sort of like Ezekiel sees the valley of dry bones. And life has been breathed into us by his spirit, if we've acknowledged Yeshua as Messiah of Israel. The Lord, I love this, the Lord will be my light. Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Yeshua speaks of himself as the light of the world. Yeshua tells us that we are to let our lives shine before others, that they may see the light of God's presence in our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven, and not glorify us, but to glorify him. The Lord will be my light. And in being that our light, he takes us, he rips us out of the dungeon. He rips us out of the chains that have bound us and he grants us freedom. You know, I was reading this in the Psalms, Psalm 119, you know, that really long Psalm. I don't know how many verses it is. How many, anybody know how many verses it is? What was that? Wow. One, okay, is that the lottery number? 176. And right on, Jerry, oh my, 176. Well, you're preaching next week, so. But Psalm 119, verse 45. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Do you feel free? You know, free from the evils and shackles of life, but also free to pursue the joys and hopes and dreams of our life. You know, that's saying the precepts of God sets us free from the shackles of evil and sets us free to enjoy the joys of of life. I got to tell you, you know, I came to faith when I was 17 and as you know, raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. But in those early days, the fellowship that I was a part of, all we sang, as I remember, were hymns. And sometime later, we'd put our own melodies to those hymns as we would lead in worship. So the other day, yesterday, as I was rereading the scripture and rethinking about how I was, what I was going to be sharing. This hymn came to mind. And, you know, I'm a guy, so I don't cry that much. Although this year I probably cried more than I ever have cried in all my life. But I don't cry that much. And here I was sitting in uh, the room where I study, and I'm singing this hymn, and the tears start coming down my eyes. I'm not really sure why. But 
These words are so incredible. They were written by Charles Wesley, and they were written three days after he came to faith. Charles Wesley is the brother of John Wesley, of course, and these two men were incredible servants of God. And the hymns that Wesley wrote are just, they're just amazing. Let me just read these words, the third verse or so that really strikes me with regard to Micah's passage. But this whole hymn is so amazing that, you know, there was even a sense, but I don't know if any of you know the melody. I was going to say, let's just sing this, but I didn't want to embarrass myself. But the hymn is, uh, And Can It Be? And so he wrote, And Can It Be? I mean, even that, think about this. He's raising this question. Is it really possible? Is this really what happened? He says, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin, Leviticus tells us. I mean, is it really true? Three days, keep this in mind. Three days after the lights came on on this man's soul. The, you know, scales fall off his eyes and he's writing. Is it really true that I have gained? And get that, you know, he didn't say I earned. I worked hard at this. This is something that was given to him. This was something that came to him. This is something that was revealed to him. This is just something that was graced upon him. And he says, is it true that I should gain an interest in the an interest in the Lord's attention that he would die for me. That's what he's saying. That I would gain an interest in the Savior's blood. That I would gain an interest that God would be so concerned for me that his own son would die for me. That's just two lines. We've got like 35 verses to go. But think about that. Is that, that that's just starting really taking hold of me because it's not just true of him. It's true of me too. And it's true of all of us. The problem is we don't think deeply about what God has done for us. That's what Mike is trying to tell us. That God is going to rise, raise us up. The light of God is going to shine upon us. Is it really true that God was so concerned with you that he sent his son for you? And then he says, died he for me? That he died for me? Who caused his pain? That's the reason he suffered. He didn't suffer because they came upon him and took control of him. He laid down his life freely, Yeshua says. No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. And he lays it down for those of us who caused him to lay it down. He didn't have to lay it down. He laid it down because of what we have done. And he's so concerned for us. He says, for me, who to him death pursued. Death ought to pursued us. But it pursued him in our behalf. And then he says, amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Then the second verse says, tis mystery all. 
I mean, that's, this is so perfect, right? The immortal dies. I mean, think of that juxtaposition, the immortal, the one who is not subject to mortality, mortals. The immortal one, mortals. He dies. How is that possible? He says, it's a mystery. It's what it is. It's a mystery. People say, why is it that someone can die? I have no, it's a mystery. How is it that sacrifices of bulls and goats could even temporarily cover sin? It's a mystery. And then he says, in vain. He says, who can explore his strange design? You know, God's ways. But get this line. In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. He's talking about the seraphim that surround the throne of God in Isaiah. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so he has in vain, they sound the depths of love divine. They just can't say it enough. There's not enough voice, even in the greatest of God's creatures, these seraphim, these burning ones that surround the throne of God and and resound the glory of God to him over and over. This to sound the depths of love, tis mercy all. That's what it's all about. This is what, what Micah is saying. He will throw our sin into the depths of the sea. It's all about mercy. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. You cannot fathom it. Just give thanks for it and give him praise for what he has done. But this is the verse. And I won't go through it all because I can just preach his song. But here's what it was, this idea that the light of God would shine. This is what struck me, this line. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound, shackled in sin and nature's night. And then he says, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The light of God just bang shine forth. And he says, I woke. You know, God just woke me up. You know, his grace opened my heart. His love enabled my eyes to see. He quickened my mind that I could understand the word of God as it was intended to be understood. And he says, I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. That's why we follow him. Because he invaded our space by his light. And his light removed the chains and shackles of sin. And we rose. And then he enabled us by his grace to follow him. That's what Micah is saying. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Is he your light? (laughs) You know, did he take the chains off of you? Then why are we not following him and walking in light and being hopeful? For we will one day rise. 
If we're following him, then we should be ones who can sing the song of hope and expectation. Now, there's a lot more to say say to you, but let me move forward because I just want to show you this. I said that this was a hymn of of hope, hymn of salvation. Look at verse 11. He says, the day for building your walls will come. This word for walls is a unique word. It's used in Isaiah 5. It's used in Psalm 80. It's the walls that were put around a vineyard that would protect the vineyard from any hirelings or anyone coming up and stealing the crops or animals coming in and eating what they should not be eating. He says the time for rebuilding your walls will come. Israel in Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80, can't turn there now, but you look at it, is likened to a vine whose walls have fallen down. Now what Micah is saying, the Lord's going to rebuild those walls around his vineyard, Israel. We'll bring salvation to her. We'll bring protection to her. And what had become like a wild vine, Isaiah 5, growing in all kinds of directions, will now be pruned, will be trimmed, and will be made to be fruitful. And to bear much of God's manifestation of his character and of his presence. This is what Messiah came for. That we would bear fruit and bear much fruit and bear much more fruit, he says in John chapter 15. And he says that when that occurs, it will not just be Israel, but people from Assyria and Egypt and from Babylonia and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship him. But I want to come down to this song of, of restoration. Look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. This made me think of David's own response to God when Nathan had told him of the great promises that God was going to give to David. And after he mentions all these promises, David says in chapter 2 Samuel 7, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? As if this were not enough in your sight. Oh, sovereign Lord. That's what David keeps saying. Sovereign Lord. He's the one that's in control. You have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with mankind? Is this the way you always are? You know? David is so amazed that God would make these promises to him and his family. He says, Lord, this is what you're always like. And, but why ought I to be singled out? But look what he says when he comes down to verse 25. It's a great prayer. And, you know, we learn something about praying. He just prays about God. He doesn't pray about his needs, his wants, his desires. He prays about God, oh sovereign God, is this the way you do this? How could you say such things? Who am I that you would do this? Everything's focused on him and not on himself. And then when he gets to verse 25, and now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. And look at this, do as you promised. I love that. He says, God, do as you promised. This is what Micah is saying. Lord, do as you promised. Shepherd your people with your staff as you promised to do. 
Now, this idea of God as a shepherd struck me as well. Do you know the different ways God is referred to as a shepherd? Psalm 80. Look at that. It's one of my favorite psalms. O shepherd of Israel who guides Israel like a flock, you who sit enthroned above the cherubim. Take a look at that. The shepherd of Israel. Yeshua comes on the scene and what does he say? I am the good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. But he's not just the shepherd of Israel and he's not just the good shepherd. But in the book of Hebrews, he's called the great shepherd of the flock. And that comes after he reports all of these people of faith. And he says, God is the great shepherd. And then Peter speaks about him as the chief shepherd. I mean, this imagery of God as the shepherd of Israel, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. It means to emphasize he cares about us. His thinking is about us. Notice he says, take your, what does he call it? Your staff. The staff was meant to guide the sheep as the sheep were meant to follow him. The staff was meant to defend the sheep, to keep the enemies away. Those in wolves uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, for example, who are hirelings, who only want to destroy the sheep. They look like sheep. But they're not. They have bad intentions in mind. And the good shepherd is watching his sheep. And he uses his staff to keep those that would harm his sheep away. And so he says, shepherd your people. Provide for us. Guide us. Lead us. He's crying out to God to do this in our behalf. And look what he says. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. You know where Gilead is? It's in Jordan today. It's near the Jordan River and by the, by the uh, Sea of Galilee, by the Yarmuk River. That's Gilead. That's where Elijah the Tishbite, the Gileadite, had come from. That's part of Jordan today. And Bashan, you know where Bashan is? That's the, Gol- that's the Gol- Golan Heights. Going up into Syria, it encompasses all of Mount Hermon. When, it, when my son and I were in Israel last year, and I was there with my cousin, one of our tour guides, he brought us up to the Golan Heights. And we just drove around there. It's just a flat, plain area. And the view, we went off to this area and looked down on the Sea of Galilee. Then he took us to a steak place. And we sat down and we're eating. And he said, you know, the Golan Heights is part of Bashan. And you know, the scripture speaks of the bulls of Bashan. Read Psalm 22. It says, like bulls of Bashan, they surround me. Speaking of Messiah's sufferings. The bulls of Bashan, that whole area was known for the grazing of cattle. And while we're eating, he's saying, you know, some of this meat may be like descendants of the bulls that were here during the time. <laughs> That's my cousin, you know, he's thinking. I said, okay, you know. <laughs> But he's saying, enlarge our territory. Spread us out to all of the land you have promised to us. Shepherd your people and bring them to every pasture, nook, and cranny that you've promised to us. It's a song of vindication. A song of God's restoration of his people. And there are more that we could say, but let me just say at the very close, who is a God like you? That's Micah's name, by the way. 
Micha. Me is who? In Hebrew, here's a little quick Hebrew lesson. This is what I did with my students, and it was done to me. But this is what I did to my students when we first were teaching them Hebrew in high school. I said, me is who, who is he, and he is she. So me is who. So if you want to say, who is she, you say, me, he. If you want to say, who is he, or, or who is it, you say, me, who. So I said to my students, so me is who, who is he, and he is she, you know. And they say, okay, class dismissed, you know, just, just kind of muse on that. So Micah, me, ka. Me is who? The ka is the kaf, it's like or as in Hebrew. So who, me is who? Don't forget, me is who? Ka, who is like? Yah. Who is like the Lord? That's the sacred name of God, the small form for it. Who is like God? And so... Micah sort of plays on his name. And the answer is, there's no one like him. There's no one like the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no one like the Messiah of Israel. There is nothing that can compare with him. I love tradition. There's nothing that is like our God. I love music and I love to play, I love to sing. But there is nothing like our God, you know? He is to be loved with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our power, with all of our resources, with all of our will, with all that is within us, we are to love him. Why? Because there is no one else deserving of that. Who is like God? There's no one like him. And what does he do that makes him so exceptional? Look what he does. He pardons and he forgives. Are you a pardoner? (laughs) Are you a forgiver? That's what Messiah wants us to be. We're to be conformed to the image of his son. And what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Are you like God? Is God taking up residence in your life by his spirit in such a way that you're becoming like him over time? None of us is perfectly like him. But are we on a positive trajectory? Are we partners? Are we ones who are forgivers like God is toward us? And look who he says it to, of the remnant of his inheritance. He says he doesn't stay angry forever. Are you an angry kind of person? God isn't. He gets angry, but he doesn't stay angry forever. If you're an angry kind of person, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with it well. Because if you're going to be like God, you can't be like that. Are you one that delights in showing mercy? Or do you have to have your way and have to get your pound of beef, as it were? Are you ready to give up? Or do you have to receive? Merciful people give. They find delight in giving away, not having to be receivers of. That's why Yeshua said it's more blessed to give than to receive. He says, you will again have compassion on us. Are we compassionate people like God? You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I mention that because on the day of Rosh Hashanah, Tashlich, we cast 
We cast, we hurl our sin into the depths of the sea with the breadcrumbs. I spoke about that a little bit Wednesday night. This is where it comes from. The point is, that is all symbolic. And it really doesn't do anything but throw bread into the sea. Our sin can't be taken away by just taking breadcrumbs, saying it, and putting it on water. God had made provision for how our sin is to be dealt with. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin, Leviticus 17 says. And that's why Messiah, tis mystery all, that he laid down his life for us, as the prophet said Messiah would, the suffering servant, that we might have eternal life. And then he concludes, God, you will be true to Jacob. You will show mercy to Abraham, even as you promised in days of old. I pray you would experience God's grace this way. And I pray that we would all exhibit it as well. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful, Lord, for your kindness. We're grateful for your compassion We're grateful for your mercy. And Lord, these are incredible words of Micah. Who is a God like you? There is no other God. And there is no one that even comes close to being like you. But Father, you have been gracious to us. You called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans. Your voice speaks to us and you call us out of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And then you wake us up by blaring your light into our lives. Father, when you show up as such, may we not be resistant to you, but may we be compliant and responsive. We are grateful, Lord, for your goodness toward us. And so, Father, help us to walk in your ways. We pray in Messiah's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.